0: Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Cam Talks, the anti-ignorance podcast. This episode, I sat down with Dan Grisbeck. Dan is an engineer who I met freshman year in Forbes Hall, and he's now currently a chemical engineer with several summers of experience at different types of power plants. This was great because I was able to get his opinion on two different types of power plants, one of them being a coal-coke power plant, and the other a biomass-burning power plant. Dan has a lot of insight into something called carbon sequestration, which is how you turn some waste into actually more energy, and this is a process that I don't think a lot of people know about, but is kind of a cutting-edge kind of use for the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere right now. We also talked about how realistic it is to do this and what would need to happen politically and economically for it to work. We finished up with a little light conversation about exercise, lifting, crossfit, and yoga, and it was a pretty good, pretty nice, quick episode. Please enjoy. Jacob's tirade
1: of the week. (laughs)
0: Or, where's the most illegal place you've ever eaten a hot dog? Pocket dog. Pocket dog. Sausage counts, but not as much as a hot dog.
1: Most illegal place I've ever eaten a hot dog? Illegal place. Once I've ever eaten a it hot like dog in a place. Place. That <laughs> <definitely sucks. laughs> is a good sign that you haven't just What is an illegal real? place? Like, like in a place where you're not supposed to eat food? Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Like, like a gym? A protein You're eating a hot dog in the gym? <laughs> he, he curls
2: with one arm and eats the <laughs> hot dog with the other arm <laughs> to maximize gains. That's how you get the protein <laughs> uptake. Yeah, I that no food upper level strats. I, just, I just went with the it. The protein uptake. All right. <laughs> Anyway, on that note, <laughs> welcome to episode
0: seven. I'm sitting here with a much fuller couch than last week, with Zach, Philpot, my roommate, and Dan Grisbeck. How are you guys doing? Good, good.
2: Thanks and, for having us on.
0: Oh wait, Jacob is also here. Uh, yeah, thanks. In Jacob. his Googled, afterthought, <laughs> in his Googler role, prepared to Google anything and everything we're gonna need today. Yeah, probably not. But... Okay. Well. <laughs> Our topic today is Dan Grisbeck, who's sitting here with us. A little bit about his life and about the scientific things that he's done and the scientific things that interest him. How are you doing today? Good, good. So, Dan, you are a chemical engineer, and you've been going to school for four years, so you're a senior now. When are you planning on graduating? Uh, In the fall. In the fall. So you're kind of where I am pretty much completely done. You've taken all the... So basic stuff, you're into the more advanced classes now?
2: Yeah, upper-level pillar classes is pretty much what we have left.
0: Yeah. So as far as getting into the whole STEM major in general, how did you get there?
2: Pretty much started in high school mainly. A lot of AP classes, AP chemistry, um, AP computer science, um, AP calculus, stuff like that. Had some really good teachers who kind of pushed me down that path. Um, I like the problem-solving aspect that engineering offers. I don't think you really get that with a lot of other careers, so kind of from late middle school, early high school I knew I wanted to do engineering. It was kind of just a matter of what kind. Did you feel
0: like there was, it kind of worked out that you were going to do engineering or that you at one point had to make a choice? Like, this is the time, I have to choose now to be an engineer or choose something else
2: i think it was already like pretty predetermined i mean even since i was in elementary school my parents always thought oh he's gonna be an engineer and my family always said um that they all knew i was gonna end up going into engineering so i think that kind of even if i wasn't actually going to and if that didn't really suit me the constant kind of like in my ear type of thing would would have pushed me down that path but i think it's the right the right path I, i thought about going into law but then as soon as I was old enough to realize how expensive that was, and how non-guaranteed that was, I thought engineering was the better aspect because yeah. I do I do think law offers the same thing where you can very solve similar. the problem. Yeah, right?
0: I mean there's there's an analytical sense to how you approach a case in law that's very close to identical to the engineering process in general. Zach, how about you? We've never had you on the podcast, and you're not the main main character in this podcast, but you're also a chemi, so how did you get into chemical engineering? Yeah,
1: it's funny you asked that. I actually had a mock interview, let would say, a year ago for one of my classes and I was all I was all ready to like talk about I had an internship. Uh, this guy had like my resume. And I was ready to like talk about the interview and in t- talk about in the interview about my internship and this guy starts with why are you a chemical engineer? Mm-hmm. And I literally froze in front of the entire class for about like two minutes. It was the most embarrassing day of my life. <laughs> I had no idea how to answer this guy because it's kind of similar to Dan. It's kind of just like kind of grow up, and it's, all the teachers say how it's like a good route, and if you have the, the willpower to do it and the intelligence to go through it, it's kind of like everyone kind of pushes you towards that path. I really wanted to be a cop, actually, but my dad steered me towards engineering. But yeah. I mean, I did well in high school, so I gave it a shot, and that's really why I'm here today. I don't really have like a. Cool story about it. It's just kind of like where law. I ended up. Well, I think that's yeah.
0: where the majority of people.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm kind of weird because I didn't know what I wanted to do right up until I got like my acceptance for letters. So I still yeah. didn't know I wanted to be an engineer even when I got into Pitt. But my whole family my my father, my mother, my brother are all engineers. So. I picked it because of that, and then I do remember the, the day and the moment and where I was when I picked Civil. I was like, okay, Mom and Dad, tell me what each of the engineering is. And we, I settled on Civil just because it's more of an from the design point of view, it's bigger yeah. than life, yeah, easy to break down, crowd. very, for me, kind of an artistic way of looking at it, which of course you can take into every major, but that was my own personal experience. Yeah, it suits your skill set. Yeah, so I always think that's cool, and I've been asking that to pretty much every guest we've gotten here, except for like my dad because he's <laughs> uh, I don't he picked engineering for a vastly different reason than <laughs> what what he's doing right now. But yeah, so you have had a series of pretty cool, or you've most more recently are coming back from an internship in California. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so my my very first, um, well. I don't know if you've talked about co-op in the past um, on the show, but for anyone who hasn't listened to the past episodes, co-op is basically a rotating internship. So Pitt has, and a lot of other engineering schools, um, they have this co-op program, and you'll co-op with the same company for three rotations. So you'll alternate between school and work um, at your internship. And my first internship rotation um, was in Pittsburgh um, on Neville Island, um, basically, I mean, just your typical island. Typical power plant setup where you have um, the ability for ships to come in, drop off coal. In our case, we were a, a coal plant. We mm-hmm. uh, made coke out of out of coal, and that plant was just absolutely disgusting. I mean, it was not somewhere where I'd ever want to work. Very dirty, and because but that's the that's the nature of coal. I mean, it's just it's not a clean material, no matter what you. Are you in
0: respirators it? even as the engineering role there?
2: Yes, yes. Everyone um, there had to get fitted for half mass respirators. If you were on the plant, um, almost anywhere of note, like if you're just walking down the main road, you didn't need to have a respirator on. But if you went into the battery, which is where they drop all the coal in and they heat it up to extremely high temperatures to make that more refined coke that had less um, impurities to it, or if you went the byproducts anywhere where they had their Sulfur dioxide and other materials. You had to have your respirator on. So
0: yeah, that's that's intense. I yeah, mean, it seems to be to me to be one of these things that where people will say, "Oh, coal is dirty. Coal is clean." It's this political issue, but I mean, it's pretty clear from a scientific standpoint and uh, ecological standpoint that it, it does have negative effects. I mean, yeah, you just
2: had to work there for. One day, and you would see it. You had to you had to shower every day after work because yeah, I mean it wasn't just like a you had to shower because you got so dirty. It was a mandated you have to shower every day after oh, work wow. because of the yeah, just the the chemicals that you would get on um, your clothing. Like uh, I had to wear, you had to have cotton um, like undergarments. So you had to have full pants, full shirt. Mm-hmm. You had um, flame retardant pants, flame retardant shirt, flame retardant jacket. You had to have a cotton hood if you were going up on the battery. Um, You had a four-gas monitor on you at all times. What does that look like? um, So basically, it's kind of, think almost like walkie-talkie size, and you would clip it on. And it monitored your carbon monoxide levels, um, your lower explosive limits. I forget what, maybe sulfur content and I forget what the fourth was, um, but so, so if
0: it starts beeping, you run. Oh outside. yeah, if it,
2: it starts beeping, you immediately evacuate. And it would. I mean, it would. It would regularly beep, and I mean, you you made sure you put on your half mass respirator if it beeped all the time. But for the most part, you wanted to get out of there. And it, it depends where you were at. There were some areas where you would stay because if you're on the battery, you knew it was carbon monoxide, yeah. um, and that's something that your respirator could protect you from front, um, fine, but if you were in the byproducts, you wanted to get out of there because it was sulfur gas probably. So
0: a half mask respirator is that the one with the cans you can trade out? It is, yeah.
2: They have the the two cans on the side, not the one that covers your full face. Think of basically like yeah. that. No,
0: liquid. I know. It's like, it's the, it's the lower half. A lot yeah. of, uh, interestingly enough, that's what veteran graffiti and mural artists will get. That, that makes the same, sense, yeah. Same kind of mask. But that's crazy. So first, first internship, co-op, You are at a coal power plant. What happened next?
2: And so that plant closed down. I had a nice first rotation. I think I learned a lot. Um, A lot, especially from almost like a tech side. I I did a lot of stuff with Excel and VBA programming. Um, And then I moved on to California. They extended an offer out to me in Stockton, California, which is kind of central California, about an hour and a half east of San Fran, 45 minutes south of Sacramento. Um, and that's kind of more of almost a, it's a city, it has about two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand 300,000 people there. Um, but it's not a city how you would picture like a Philadelphia, a Pittsburgh a New York City. Yeah. It's, it's just high population, but it's almost like strip mall type of setup. Yeah, um, sure. but once I worked there, I was in a um, biomass plant. So basically what we did was we burned, um, agricultural or urban fuel. So, Either think of like wood pallets or there's a lot of farming in that area. So every, I think it's 10, 20 years, it varies based on the type of trees, but they have to take the trees out and plant new ones because the amount of fruit that you're getting from these trees uh, kind of just decays over time. So it's not beneficial to keep them going past a certain time. And that's what we take all that fuel, we burn it, and then we sell our energy that we're creating um, that our turbine, because our turbine will transfer that type of energy um, into electrical. Yeah. And we sell it back to Pacific um, Gas and Electric um, out in
0: So is that power plant the only power plant running the town it was in?
2: Um, so no, there were, there were other ones. And I'm not sure how much of Stockton we supplied and where exactly all of our power went, because I didn't really deal with that as yeah. much. But I think we were a 45 um, megawatt, which... I mean, it's hard to really put how much that is into perspective, but it was a, a decent-sized power plant. Your biggest power plant, for the most part, are going to give you around 200. Um, Those are really big power plants. Yeah. So, 45 was a, like a respectable size. Um, So, it probably could power a good chunk of stock, I'm not exactly sure how much. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was just wondering whether it was the only power plant. Yeah, definitely, definitely the not the only one. cities, yeah. they have stuff like that. And then, were you there, is that where you were this past summer? Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, that I didn't realize that that was the type of power plant you were in. So, you're really right next to all this biomass, reusal kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about a little bit later. That's that's really cool. And just in researching it recently, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't think about because when you think of global warming and greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that it's all about how are we going to limit our production right now but at the same time we're living in a world where there's a bunch of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and a bunch of stuff that we could be doing to get it out and could we could be doing with the current other industries that are wasting energy so when you are taking these Plants and this plant matter and burning it off—it seems like it's a good idea. What are some of the downsides to that sort of a process?
2: Um, so there definitely are upsides, like you said. Um, it's considered a renewable resource, even though it's not—it's <clears throat> not technically renewable in the conventional sense because obviously you burn the fuel and it's it's gone. Yeah. But it's renewable in the sense that you plant new trees and you can you can recycle the process. Um, yeah. The downsides are. The fuel you have, that's the biggest downside because whenever you are running a power plant, you want something that's consistent. Natural gas, oil, whatever you use, it's going to be very consistent. You can look at it from a chemical sense and know that you're getting the same material every single time within a very small fraction. But with biomass, you're getting something completely different every time and that's what I dealt with a lot of um, in my, my job role because... Whenever you're burning something, you get different BTUs, whether you're burning a higher percentage of agricultural, higher percentage of urban. We try to keep that percentage consistent, Yeah. but you have to take what you can get because if you're going through a drought, um, you can have different amounts of agricultural available. This um, winter, the winter is the rainy season in California, so yeah. we had a lot of flooding. We didn't have as much agricultural available. We had to go higher urban, and our plant responded by not operating as well. We had to yeah. lower our temperatures lower our pressures, we couldn't operate at max efficiency because this fuel isn't exactly what the plant's meant to run at. That's pretty
0: cool. So,
2: <laughs> I assume there's a lot of heavy metals and There stuff are, yep. Definitely. That burn
0: off, because when I'm thinking of a pallet, you know, it's held together by nails. and there's
2: a lo- So, basically how that works is in our boiler, um, we have these grate hoppers, and they're basically just think of, just a, basically a sheet of metal except with a bunch of holes in them. Mm-hmm. And the point of that is to capture the heavy metals, so they don't go all the way through to the bottom into your kind of, I not really fuel source, but so they, they get caught, basically. Yeah. And we also have a huge magnet, but you can only capture so much. I mean, like, aluminum doesn't get captured, and that's one of your biggest, um, your biggest metal sources. And even then, the magnet's not strong enough to get heavier metals.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting, I was just watching this uh, video in, well, probably one of the more most boring videos I've ever seen in my entire life, <laughs> <laughs> about how you build a steel structure beginning to end. So they started at ore collection all the way up through implementation in the building. But in the actual steel production plant, they have almost the opposite process, right? They're burnt, they're melting this steel. It's mostly just steel, and they're collecting all the metal, and then they they do recycle some of the gases. But for you guys, you're more worried on the energy you can get from that actual burning. Mm-hmm. But that's a super cool process that is, to me, very interesting. So, it's kind of weird to go to a completely different state from college, right? Yeah. And... What would you say
2: is the worst part of that, like showing up in a new place? I'd say the drive. The drive was the worst part um, because I needed a, so basically the company gave me an option of flying out or driving out, but I needed a car while I was out in in California. I couldn't take public transportation to work, um, and even if I could, I wouldn't have been able to travel as much. It just would have been a lot more difficult without a car. Yeah. So um, the first time I went and drove out uh, with my fiance, and then... The second time, then I flew her back, and then the second time, um, I drove out with my dad and flew him back, so without having someone to drive with, it would have been, um, unbearable, but even with that, it was, I mean, it's a three-day drive, it's, it's difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, um, that's, any sort of drive like that, you gotta break it up at least three days, that long, and then, when you get there, what's that like? I assume... You got housing from your...
2: Yeah, I got family. partial housing from them. Um, the, it was just so... It was just completely different. I mean, California and Pittsburgh are not the same at all. I'd never you been... been
0: out west? No, I'd
2: never been west oh. of Ohio, actually. Um, before I started this, this um, co-op, I only made it to... I think Cleveland was as far west as I'd ever been.
0: Yeah, and um, that's crazy. A lot of people don't realize that even though it's in the same country, the culture is so different. In addition to, also, all of the geography is completely different, too. I mean, yeah. I don't know where you were in relation to the mountains.
2: Um, so California was cool because you could drive 30 minutes and you could go from farm to desert to mountains yeah. in a 30-minute span. I mean, it was incredible. I, California is absolutely beautiful. I loved it um, in terms of, like, I don't know, the landscaping and geographical sense. Um, but the biggest surprise, I think, going out to California was – you hear California and you think of these very, like, relaxed, um, liberal type of people. And it's funny because where I was at, it was, like, completely the opposite. Yeah. It was um, very conservative. It was a large sense not as friendly as you'd expect either. Um, you hear California, you think of everyone being relaxed and super nice and friendly. Yeah. And it's like, I remember my biggest car- culture shock was my first day I went out shopping got all the clothes I needed for work, um, bought my groceries, whatever, and just holding the door for people. You In Pittsburgh, I mean, it's very rare to hold the door for someone and just not get a, a nice thank you and smile yeah. or something like that. And In California, it was like head down, walk right past, and it's like you didn't even hold the door huh. for someone. It was very, it was interesting. I didn't expect it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a weird thing. I've heard the same thing from people who went to the South, and they got some hospitality, but they also were like, everybody's the same everywhere and it's kind of both true and wrong about california because in one sense you're going out there and it's very different geographically than what you know but the people are kind of similar people are dicks everywhere (laughs) exactly yeah that's uh that's cool and uh do anything anything fun in the area
2: yeah i visited um yosemite a couple times which was gorgeous. I mean, Yosemite's that was, just that was great. the coolest place I've ever visited in my life. Um, yeah. visited LA, San Fran, went to Disney. I mean, pretty much hit up everything of note there that I could. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was great. It's a great place to live. Um, but you don't realize how far everything is away from it though. There's so much in California, but California is so huge. Yeah. Um, you can just drive for, I don't know, a good hundred miles and see nothing.
0: Yeah. That's, it's such a weird thing that California, on, honestly, should probably be its own country. Yeah, because it's huge. They it are, really is. In, they're in the top ten world economies, right? They're, you know, they obviously are very politically involved as far as, you know, everybody has this idea of them. But I think that they have unequal representation when it <laughs> comes to stuff like that. Yeah, so I've been lucky enough to go out west a bunch with my family. And something I've realized when I'm out there is... The fact that it's so beautiful around you, and I've spent a bunch of my time in Colorado, but I've also been to California, and what I've realized is that it kind of affects the culture in that more people are more motivated to do outdoor activities and be healthier. Definitely, yeah. Just because, I mean, it makes sense to me, because in Pittsburgh it's just soul-crushing sometimes (laughs) in the winter, and you just want to stay inside, but there it's kind of, even in the winter it's a beautiful place and obviously some ports, parts of California during the winter are just as nice in temperature. But, yeah, no, I always love hearing from people when they first get to go out west because it's, it's weird. Yeah. You don't expect it. It's Part of it is just kind of like... And as you're you, on a different planet. Especially almost. when you drive, too. That must yeah. have been cool. Going today.
2: through, like, Utah, I mean, it, it literally feels like you're on Mars or something mm-hmm. for part of the drive. It just, yeah. it looks so different.
0: There's Del Tacos everywhere.
2: There are Del Tacos everywhere.
0: <laughs> Del Taco replaces Dunkin' Donuts, I guess. Maybe. <laughs> Pretty much.
2: Yeah.
1: Cool. Cool beans. You ever been out west Sac? I actually just got back, like, two weeks ago for my mom's 50th birthday. We flew out to, uh, Phoenix. Ooh. And did the whole Grand Canyon. Where else did you go? We, uh, well, we drove up north. We kind of hit all the hot spots. The canyon and, um. To do like arches? Like seeing, no, we didn't do arches. That's for another trip. Yeah, that's the thing. When it's you go so, out, yeah, <laughs>
0: there's just and it's so dense—not really dense—but when you go out there, you're like, I want
1: to maximize my parts. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we were in the car for thirty some hours yeah. in like seven days, and yeah, I well, rem- it was great though. But and I know exactly what you're saying. It's just a whole different like world out there. Yeah, I remember the I went to. And the, I went to Bryce,
0: Zion, and Grand Canyon in one trip. First of all, also, like, three heavy hitters. Yeah, like the, yeah. Church, the parks. But in between them, there's hours. Mm-hmm. But Deserts it's worth it. I mean, definitely worth it. I'm trying to, I've always wanted to go out there, rent a rental car, and bring, like, one less longboard than there are people, and just go up <laughs> and do those roads. Because for me, just the way it's so, it's such a beautiful place. And the topography, you can't really beat. Uh-huh. But, yeah. Love it. Cool stuff. So I want to circle back to this: what you're talking about with that, what that plant did with burning biomass, and it, it all kind of ties into this idea of carbon sequestration. So if you guys don't know what carbon sequestration is, basically, I took I looked it up on Wikipedia and kind of condensed down their description into something a little more reasonable. Carbon sequestration is the process involved in capturing and storage of atmospheric carbon dioxide. This process is very promising as a way to reduce the buildup of atmospheric and marine greenhouse gases which are released during industrial production, the burning of fossil fuels, agricultural production, and other human causes. So, what is your experience kind of more with this more specific aspect
2: of you know, greenhouse gas and how to deal with them. So even though, um, our plant is considered renewable energy, um, you're still burning a fossil fuel. The the trees and the urban products that you're burning, they're still considered fossil fuels and as a result, um, as you stated, carbon dioxide is produced. And it wasn't exactly my direct objective to deal with carbon sequestration, but it was an indirect byproduct of the work I was doing. So. Basically, um, whenever you burn all of your fuels, um, you create something called fly ash. And that's just, I mean, just think of a normal ash um, type of substance, almost like a soil. Mm -hmm. And that substance is very high in um, different types of alkali oxides. And as a result, whenever it's interacted with water, it forms alkali hydroxides. And those are extremely basic, um, extremely alkaline substances that have very high pHs. And you can't just keep all that ash on site. You need to send it somewhere. So it goes to a landfill. Okay. But this ash gets tested. And if you're over a pH of 12.5, you have to send it to a special landfill that is certified to treat hazardous waste or to take in hazardous waste. Yeah. And the landfill that we normally send it to is only about 15, 20 minutes away, um... The costs are far less for them to take it in because they don't have to have any sort of um, special like permitting for hazardous waste, and they're also so much closer, so the amount of fuel um, that you have to spend on paying your drivers is way less. I yeah. mean, the trucking fees are, are substantially less. So, since probably about five or six months before I started, the pH um, of our ash was really starting to skyrocket, and we got above 12.5, so... I mean, every year, I don't want to put an exact estimate or exact amount on um, how much that costs just for confidentiality to the company, but it's a very large amount every year and it really decreases how productive your, your plant can be. For sure. Um, so as a result of my kind of research into that, as well as one of our chemical engineers, we came across the, um, process of carbon sequestration and basically that, those hydroxides in the ash can be treated with carbon dioxide and they'll form carbonates. And not only is that good for lowering the pH because calcium carbonate, for example, has a pH of about 9 or so, maybe 10, I think it's 9.2 roughly, and the pH of calcium hydroxide is about 12.5. Yeah. So you get the benefit of having, for us, all, all we really cared about was lowering the pH. I mean, that's where the money was at. That's what we needed to do as a company. But you're also sequestering all this carbon dioxide, and you're helping the environment as a result. So
0: is that the fly ash, is that a a process or a part of this this chemical process of uh, mineral sequestration?
2: Um, Yeah, it is. So it's not a commonly used one. Um, To my knowledge, I don't think that fly ash is used that common for carbon sequestration right now. I think it's mainly general soils. But I think it's something that more plants should be doing. It's created almost, I mean, not any um, fossil fuel, for example, like oils and stuff like that, you really don't have that fly ash, but any sort of coal process, you get a fly ash, any sort of wood process, wood burning process. So is it biochar? Yeah, basically. That's um, it's it's not quite biochar, it's like, it's it's similar, yes. It's, it's
0: kind of like zombie biochar, right? Like you kind of... it looks and acts like biochar but it's kind of you got it in a different way sort of yeah yeah because I comparison when I was researching this the the biochar is a very new thing like studies have are just starting to kind of be done on it but it's what you're saying it's uh, a charcoal created by any sort of thermochemical uh, decomposition of organic material and it can be added to a land landfill and the soil to make better landfilling basically, which is kind of cool because that's the crossover between our majors is Mm -hmm. landfills and this sort of waste management. And we talk a lot about how landfills are... Ideally, really great sites for carbon sequestration <laughs> because you're taking all this organic matter, all this half-eaten food, all this stuff, and you're putting it in the, in the ground where it's not releasing the atmosphere and you cap it and you do all these things where you test the gases coming out of it, make sure it doesn't explode and upheave and stuff like that. But the big problem, the huge issue with landfills and with like human waste in general is we put it in these pesky bags. And to get through those bags and to start that biological process is, it's an astronomical amount of time. Yeah. So, I always, I thought that was a pretty cool crossover between what we're talking about. But, I thought it would be interesting to bring up the most basic form of carbon sequestration, which is just any sort of saving of carbon in the land. So, that can be... The creation of of peat bogs, which is, a peat is literally just uh, decomposing matter. So usually like mosses, but any dead trees and stuff. That's why swamps are really good places to sequester carbon, because they're so full of this rotting material that's kind of being, the rot is kind of being slowed down, which is what you want. Then also any sort of forest, any sort of trees is going to help with you know filtering the carbon dioxide because trees trees tend to like carbon dioxide and finally i think this is kind of what you do there's two sides of agriculture right there's the cowspiracy side where we reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of this whole industry because of the way that it affects us and because there's a cultural thing behind meat. check out episode five <laughs> but there's also the other side of it where you're reducing the impact by taking these byproducts like what your plant was kind of doing and and burning them off and getting even more energy out of them which is sounds counterintuitive cuz you're still burning them and it is kind of but ideally in the whole equation it's overall beneficial yeah so yeah and I think that it's interesting how all this stuff kind of meshes together, and this is certainly a solution to the sort of cowspiracy problem as well as, you know, cars and and industrial... I mean, we've all worked at industrial places. Like, you know, I'm sure, Zach, the amount of waste that happens on any process, anything. It's, it's phenomenal.
1: <laughs> we waste so much of everything in any process.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. Everything from the little... Plastic sleeve that the the safety glasses come in that you just throw out to you know entire vats of uh you worked at a makeup
1: pounds pasture, and right? pounds of makeup gets thrown out because it's you know it might be like a, a blemish in the bottle yeah so they just like, like chuck it yeah. stuff like that and that's that's what a lot of people
0: don't realize when they don't work in the industrial field is that. Yeah, reducing and recycling and not eating that much meat is important, but a huge percentage of greenhouse gas creation comes from this industrial complex. And, the, I mean, we're all at fault. We just pay with our wallets, not really with our you know, actual car producing this stuff. So, carbon sequestration. Good or bad, Dan? Very good. Very
2: good. What are the problems with it? Um, it's it's difficult. It's not that easy. One, you have to, so, well, I guess the biggest thing is in terms of industrial, um, plants don't really have any sort of incentive to do it. Yeah. Because if we didn't have our pH issue, we would never even have looked into it because we're not getting taxed on our carbon dioxide. Yeah. And I think that we should be. I mean, obviously it would make us less money, but... In the end, I think that if plants um, and industry in particular isn't held accountable, then we're going to just keep, the the environment's going to keep getting warmer and warmer as a result of more carbon dioxide in the environment. And I don't anticipate that happening in the next four years, obviously, because the current administration has already um, clearly gone away from that side. But I think in the future, you will have taxes on, carbon dioxide emissions, I think that's something the EPA is going to really start stomping down on because, and once that happens, it's really not hard. It's not difficult for our plant to just, so basically we have flue gas and that that creates a lot of our carbon dioxide or we release it out of the burning of our fuels and that creates a lot of carbon dioxide. But all we have to do is have piping that keeps that carbon dioxide and we just pipe it in and pass it over our fly ash byproduct and we sequester that carbon dioxide and we lower our pH and it's not, the initial cost might be a little bit, it might be maybe a few hundred grand, but in the the scheme of things that's nothing. Um, And the amount of benefits that would have in the environment if every company that has something like this do that, it would. I mean, it would make an astronomical difference.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't want to get too political on this podcast because that's like you go into a whole deep mm-hmm. dive. But the the basis of it, which is what I like to talk about more than the individual issues or whatever tweet Trump just had or whatever, mm-hmm. like that stuff is so of non importance to me, w- whether for one reason or another. What really is important to me is the the basic sort of what your philosophy is that drives your politics. So what you're saying, I, I completely match up with you on in that we need to be responsible for our Earth now, but I've, what I've run into is there's actually a, a large group of people, and this is kind of the more saner side of the argument for why you should, you know, destroy regulation, is that it's not about saving the planet, it's about how we can make money off of the planet in this amount of time, and that to us sounds evil because of you know Disney movies and whatever reason, but to some people it is just there is this much resource left, and let's do it, let's use it. So I was thinking, how can we monetize carbon sequestration? And I think the right way to do it isn't just taxing. I think it's it's also you throw a benefit into yeah, it in addition to would be the back into the tax, like, because we have... Think of lead certifications on buildings, you know? That, I don't know if you know too much about it, is there's... Benadum is lead gold certified, which means we have a certain amount of points. And so... I actually know quite a bit about this because my brother was on a building that got one of the only lead Platinums of the year, which was the New Balance headquarters in Boston, and so he was putting it together. And you basically need roof gardens, you need hot water or solar water heaters, you need a certain amount of solar power, stuff like that, That and you get the certification, and then just on the outside it looks great because your company has a certification, you can put that mm-hmm. plaque up, but you also get some sort of benefits from the government. Yeah, so it is a good thing to have when you look at the environmental effect that we have, and okay, yeah, we can stop the carbon footprint of humans, but how can we also kind of take what we have and add that into our current resources more than what we have to deal with? And it's a really cool thing because of that. But what else? You said you wanted to talk a little about lifting. You're super into <laughs> Olympic lifts and stuff, right? I am. I did not know we were going to talk about this. Well, so I, just, I, I a a little, I'm off guard. feel like we got a little uh-huh. time Okay. A little time okay. So how did you get into, really into lifting, more than just going to the gym to work (laughs) out? Well,
2: I, so I played, uh, baseball was the only sport I stuck with all through um, high school, and for whatever reason, we started doing um, CrossFit for our baseball off-season training, which was just an awful idea, honestly, but, um, because you, for the sport, I mean, you want explosiveness, um, so if we did Olympic lifting or something like that, it would have, it would have made a lot of sense, um, but that kind of got me started working out, and then, um, CrossFit really as alone doesn't really make you look any better, so it was pretty much vanity reasons. Yeah. Almost solely. I think kind of whenever you're you're younger in high school, people are a lot less mature. So I think getting like picked on and stuff probably motivated me a little bit more to, to start lifting, um, look better, get bigger. Like you have these uh, vain goals in your head of, of where you're gonna be. And then I started doing it, it was just fun. Like it was a good yeah it was a good stress reliever, um it was you could set goals, you could see your your results increasing and it kind of got addicting almost. For sure. I,
0: I had very similar reasons for starting to work out at the beginning of of college. That's when I really kind of got into it. Senior year of high school, joined uh, Planet Fitness to just kind of get into mm-hmm. it. And then here, of course, we have pretty good facilities yeah. for free. and Free? Wow. Well, in <laughs> in addition... There's a podcast on that alone. I mean, yeah. if, well, know, that's the it. whole education yeah. podcast. Yeah. But it's... I mean, vanity is a totally valid reason to get into it, and I think that's a lot of people's reasons for it, but what you're saying about CrossFit and how, I I read this great article on why CrossFit is actually inherently not a good thing that can be used in a very good way, Mm -hmm. so you can go to CrossFit every day and get super fit and love it, and you're fine, but there's also a chance you're going to hurt yourself just yeah. because of the way that the...
2: The way the wads are, the workout of the day, a lot of them are dangerous because you're performing an exercise that should not be performed at a high number of times because it's so taxing on your central nervous system and you're just doing it for a time. You're not doing it for um, a certain weight. You're not... Your, your form gets compromised because you're just trying to do as many as possible and that's why... I mean, if you look at the amounts of injuries at CrossFit compared to other lifting types, it is, I mean, I don't have any statistics with me um, on it, but I know from looking at it in the past, it's the the number of incidents per, per hundred, per thousand hours, they're significantly higher than any other type.
0: Yeah, and that that workout of the day is kind of an odd thing to have in general because it's so against what I think of when I think about fitness. What it is, is there's, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not too keen on on CrossFit, so I don't study up enough, but they have somebody do a workout, and that's the workout of the day. Mm-hmm. And then you have everyone else in the country uh, on that day check in on that, and then try to
2: do it themselves, right? Exactly, yeah. And try to beat whatever time or Yeah, yeah just or try whatever. to get as good... A, so, basically, they have, like, certain... They have names. So, like, usually, a lot of them are, like, names of, like, like, girls. Like, they're called, like... There's one called, um... I think, like, Sam, one called, like, Franny, or something like that. And what you do is, you do a couple of different Things. so you'll do like um, wall ball tosses and then you'll run for 500 meters and then you'll do so many overhead presses and you'll go through this so many times and you'll try to get your best time yeah and you can repeat these workouts or workouts of the day wads um, and you try to beat your own personal time but crossFit's interesting because it's not it's hardly lifting it's almost like a sport in itself yeah um, more so than like a lifting regime.
0: Yeah, that's and I think people who don't approach it like that, that's the that's when it can be really bad. When people approach it as the same as lifting and not like this activity that I have to be ultra careful with cuz I'll twist my back. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing like if I go and play soccer or very rarely go play basketball, I know to make sure that like I do not tweak my back cuz I'm going to be jumping and doing things that are irregular. Mm-hmm. But when you kind of have this irregular activity in a regular space like a gym, where you're supposed to be focused on form, that's where it gets a little wishy-washy. Yeah. I And, of course, it's like a fad in U, in the U.S. There's always is, yeah. Yeah, a downside to whatever. Except yoga. Super <laughs> Indian. <laughs> you ever do yoga? I
2: I have. I've actually I've done hot yoga before. That was one of the the hardest things I think I've ever done. Was that, I'm,
0: like, one of your first times doing yoga? It was my...
2: Mm, I think I've... We did it some in high school, but it wasn't like... It was easy stuff. Um, but yeah, the first time I did hot yoga, and it was it was a novice level of hot yoga, yep. and oh, some of the stretches was, I am not very flexible, and that was uh, that was pointed out to me um, very much when I started oh, yeah. trying to do it. It's the constant. You
0: gotta leave your pride at the door as a beginner yoga yeah. yogi, I guess. I, but I started doing it because it, it. I just you know a little bit heard everybody's heard of yoga because the fad swept the nation yeah. pretty recently. But for my back, I have this back problem called congenital kyphosis where one of my vertebrae is a little misformed. It doesn't have the corner to it. It's more of a triangle shape. So when there's not that many health effects from that other than I can tweak my back if I don't stretch regularly. And I'm such a shit bag that I'll just forget to stretch if I am not doing athletic activities for a couple days. So that's another reason for me to get into yoga. And I really haven't found anything like it. The, the process of stretching and focusing on your breathing for, for 50 minutes is I've, I really haven't found anything that clears your head, forces you to meditate, and stretches out your entire body better. So for that reason, I actually recently joined this uh, rock gym that just opened in Southside called Ascend, and they have this membership where you get unlimited yoga, but also they have a really cool rock climbing facility. So I thought that would be kind of a cool transition from the lifting thing where I have kind of fallen out of love with lifting, whether for one reason or another, just kind of, you know, parts of it become pretty mundane where you just go and you do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. which is part of it, I understand, is the meditation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You go and you do the same thing every day and that's cool. But to me, I'm always one of those guys who I'm gonna do a superset with two activities because I need to have like kind of things like that, or I'll do max sets sometimes. But I was running into lack of motivation, so for me, I think that rock climbing is probably a better, better outlet
2: as far as you know. You can switch it up more. You can keep the variety. Yeah. Coming. It's more. It's more like fun. I mean, it really is. It's Definitely more. more fun. Yeah. It's you're going for like. I don't know, you can try to get to the top of the wall and how many different times you can do it. You can do it with just your arms. I mean so many different routes you yeah, can Yeah, and they do have
0: it. they have at this new gym it's so cool the way they have it set up. They're changing the routes like every day. Yeah. Like twice a week. It's a good
1: workout too. Oh it's a great workout. Oh, it's a yeah, workout.
0: But the thing is when you look at it like that, it's it's a great workout for a certain body type. And mm-hmm. that's the vanity aspect of it. So you have to if you're gonna be rock climber, you have to be like, all right, I'm not gonna get jacked. That's just not part of it. You're going to get shredded, yeah. you know, but you're not going to be, <laughs> have. you're not going to have a huge frame more more as like a lean frame. But yeah, for no me, yeah. I've kind of accepted that and I think it's pretty cool. And I, but I also really am into Olympic lifts and seeing people just do like crazy weights because yeah. it's just like, wow, that is, that's a, that guy's picking up half a bus or some yeah. shit, sure, you know? Um, Jacob, do you want to say anything? Nope a lot of good fact checks this week. <laughs> yeah, Jacob Jacob has been really on it. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in.